0: Hello and welcome to this week's podcast for Male Plus Health. I'm Dr. Max Pemberton, a doctor and daily Mail columnist, and this is the second part of our special three-part podcast talking to Dr. Meg Arroll, a health psychologist with a particular interest in healthy eating and weight loss. So, Dr. Mink, talk to me also i was very interested um in in your writings about this kind of dopamine um and the role that that has also in our food choices and our behaviors because i suppose as a psychologist we assume that everything is sort of psychological but actually what your work seems to touch on is that there's sort of biological elements to things there's social elements as well as psychological stuff so where does dopamine fit into all this
1: well, certain foods, um, particularly chocolate, shall we say, they, they do trigger this dopamine response. And that's why it can be addictive-like. And whenever you feel that hit of dopamine, your your brain wants it again and again, because it feels really, really good. And that's why some foods, they can feel addictive. And again, it's no surprise. And that's why it's so important to think about that, because it's not just that we are, are weak or we're sort of just grabbing these foods they aren't really engineered to make us want them more and more and if you layer that on with perhaps you know being we're all stuck in our houses now, and there are not that many things to do to distract ourselves, it can become a real problem. There are studies that show even people who have um, been through bariatric surgery, they will still put on weight because they'll they'll reach for the chocolate and, and take these very energy-dense foods that are quite easy to, to eat in small portions but on a regular basis, and then it's quite difficult to lose the weight even after surgery.
0: Yes, I used to... Um, I actually used to run a a clinic specifically for patients who'd had bariatric surgery. So that's sort of weight loss surgery, um, as it's often sort of termed. So I used to run this clinic for patients who'd had bariatric surgery, but had then put weight on. And I was often just finding it quite extraordinary, the the lengths that patients would go to, to get those calories into them. Um, Because obviously they can only take often a very small volume. But they would do stuff like kind of liquidising Mars bars and stuff, just mm-hmm. just because. And it, and it really sort of like sort of emphasised to me how actually this wasn't about hunger for them because mm-hmm. they, they, they didn't experience hunger because of their, their operations. They didn't experience hunger in the same way. Um, but really this was about something else. This is a, a real kind of, you know, for them, uh, it was very much about sort of, you know, the need to kind of comfort themselves or to get reward and so on. Um, and I was always routinely surprised by how many patients... Um, we would see, and it's maybe sort of quite wary around bariatric surgery, because I think it's, it's something that the patients don't talk about and, and, and isn't explained to them that actually many overweight patients, it's, it's, it's not about the fact that they're just hungry and they're eating too much. It's about the fact that their emotional relationship with food um, it needs to be looked at.
1: No, definitely. And did you have a health psychologist on your team?
0: We didn't. Unfortunately, we didn't have a health psychologist. We had a psychology group. But again, interestingly, it was very hard to get patients because we would, we would also screen them beforehand, before they had bariatric surgery. So that was also mm-hmm. part of what our service would do. Um, and that was done. I would do that along with a psychologist as well. There's a couple of us that used to do it. And actually, it was very hard to try and convince patients, maybe you don't, you shouldn't have surgery. Maybe actually what you need is psychotherapy to explore your relationship with food lots of patients were like no no I want a quick fix that sounds like too much hassle basically I mean they never quite said it like that but that's the sort of sense you get from them And then very tragically you'd often see them come back sort of you know two three years later um saying actually do you know what i think maybe you were right and now i do need some help because this this hasn't actually either it hasn't quite worked in the way that i thought it would or actually it hasn't really resolved the problems that i now realize i had
1: no absolutely and and i think sometimes desiring this quick fix is 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 really difficult for people because psychology and psychological work is basically like physical fitness so you could buy that gym membership if you never went you're never going to sort of increase your physical fitness it's the same with our minds and actually we do need to do that psychological work it's really important but it's absolutely worth it
0: but and again I suppose it comes down to those kind of messages the complex messages that we're we're receiving in that you know i think all of us want stuff to happen yesterday you know we want stuff to we want the quick fix and and, and a lot in the media uh, is about sort of you know I I was overweight and I have I had uh, my st- you know stomach stapled and and now look at me and you know and I'm happy and I'm thin and so on and so on so mm-hmm. there's kind of there's lots of stuff in the media firstly advocating quick fixes and also kind of constantly associating you know I had this quick fix and then I became thin and then I became happy mm-hmm. um, and actually. course as we know it's much more complex than that but trying to explain that to someone who's really got their heart set on something Mm -hmm. um it's very very difficult and several times when we said to patients look we really really do think this is not the answer for you and so we're going to say no um actually they just went abroad abroad and had it done there yeah um
1: and 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 also surgery i'm I'm sure you'll agree for some people it it could be the right option but having the combined therapy so a surgical approach with a psychological approach um it it can be more beneficial wouldn't you say
0: And then talk to me as well also about cravings because this kind of this sort of uh, cheered me off a little bit. I liked what you were what you said before about cravings that they, they don't last too long because I think that's the kind of thing that often people is it, a stumbling block for them because they start having a craving and that makes them panic sometimes because they think oh god you know I'm denying myself something and I you know this is horrible and then they will, will sort of uh, you know sometimes give in when they start experiencing these cravings. But then I was in one of the things you, you'd written you were saying that you try to hold on to the fact that they're temporary. And that the brain basically isn't going to, sort of, you know, won't be constantly craving.
1: No, no, they only last a couple of minutes, really. And so this is where distraction techniques can come in really useful. And I wouldn't say using distraction as a long-term coping mechanism is Beneficial, but just in little short, sharp bits. Absolutely. So something as simple as reading a paragraph of text backwards, um, because it's cognitively demanding, you will forget about the craving. And if you do it for ten minutes, and the craving's just wearing off anyway, little things as well that can just almost snap you out of that craving. Uh, biting on a lemon. Seriously, try it. it really okay. <laughs> does work.
0: <laughs> I remember when I am. Um... When I, uh, when I stopped smoking so I was a really really heavy smoker um, and at the time actually this is years ago I, um, I was working with people addicted to drugs and we used a kind of CBT model to try and help them um, and so I thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that on myself and one of the things I did I really pa- used to panic about the cravings because of course you, you in similar way to food you know usually if I was stressed or worried about something I'd reach for cigarettes so of course when I was having a craving that would make me stressed and so I'd think well I want to have a cigarette and then sort of feed into it And one of the things I made myself do was say, Barbar Black Sheep, to do the nursery rhyme, Barbar Black Sheep, three times. And I used to say to myself, if at the end of that, you still are desperate for a cigarette, you're allowed to have one. And you know, not once I never had a cigarette. (laughs) Because by the time you've done Barbar Black Sheep three times, it goes. yeah Yeah, but it was kind of almost allowing myself do you know what i'll give you i will give you permission you can have a cigarette if it's if it's that bad you can have one and of course it it went every single time but in the moment i remember the first couple of times right this you know when i first gave up i mean it's a horrible feeling a craving for for a cigarette but it just the same as food as you were saying it's transient it goes
1: no no absolutely so a little bit of distraction can go a long way i think (laughs)
0: And then tell me also about sort of CBT, because it's something I think we hear a lot about, and we read a lot about. People might not kind of understand. So it stands for Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. I think lots of people associate CBT with depression and anxiety. Mm. So how does that relate to weight loss?
1: So first of all, I think people are absolutely right to associate CBT with depression, anxiety. It was developed initially to to tackle um, those sorts of of issues, but we know that it works in in lots of um, situations, especially with maladaptive eating. So I would say um, you work with eating disorders and most people don't have eating disorders per se but they may have disordered eating as it were and what CBT does is it shows people the links between their thoughts, so their cognitions, how they feel and how that then links to their behavior. Sometimes we just don't know why we do the things we do and pinpointing those thought patterns is incredibly useful because we can actually change them. It's something that we can modify and that then can change our behaviors or overt behavior in this case, eating behavior. It's incredibly powerful. CBT is a great, great tool. It's a very structured tool within psychology. So it can it can be taught and you can take those tools away. So it's not this it's not like being in, in therapy for the rest of your life per se. It really is a toolkit to go away with. And many of us have, have thought patterns which maybe don't benefit us as much as they could. For instance, we can catastrophize about a lot of things and at the moment I think quite a few people are because things have been very catastrophic really, so again it's not surprising but linking those thought patterns with our behaviour is absolutely key. Um, so to to go with your example, I thought it was really interesting in terms in terms of your smoking because CBT can be used for smoking cessation as well as as I'm sure you know. And so. You were distracting yourself for for a time because otherwise, if you told yourself, "Okay, you're not allowed to ever have a cigarette," that is just such a sort of polar type thought that you would your little rebel, your internal rebel, would jump in and say, "Well, no, I want one. I deserve one." <laughs> and so, being aware of those thoughts and breaking them and making them less all or nothing, what we sometimes call black and white thinking is really useful. But we have to first be aware of those thoughts. So we use lots of different tools. Some of them are thought records. We can use behavioural experiments. So what you did was actually a a behavioural experiment to see what the outcome was. And having that sort of feedback to show that we do have agency over our cognitions and our behaviours.
0: And and, and I suppose the heart of, for me, the heart of CBT is something really positive, which is that this idea that we can kind of retrain our brain, that we're not kind of stuck in these patterns necessarily endlessly, you know, the the, the things that we can do. The brain is this sort of incredible, amazing, extraordinary organ, um, and it's constantly rewiring itself. And actually you can just rewire it into into a way that's more helpful. And I love that idea. To me, that's incredibly positive.
1: Without a doubt, you can put yourself back into the driving seat, absolutely.
0: That's all we've got time for today, but come back next week for part three. In the meantime, if you want to find out more about Dr. Meg and her work, then head over to her website, which is shrinkology.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe so you know when the next podcast is released and you can find us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And whilst you're there, please leave us a review.